0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: I am doing so well. I cannot wait for this uh, episode. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm doing
0: great, Lance. And yeah, this, this episode we recorded a few weeks ago with our new friend, investigative journalist and author, Shayna Roth. She wrote a great book called Cold Cases. Check it out. We had her on one of our podcasts, Empty Frames, to talk about the Gardner heist. And we also had her live on one of our Getting Vocal Nights just a few weeks ago. And this is the episode, the, the audio that we're going to play right now.
1: Yeah, super interesting person, uh very very talented journalist, very talented writer. You mentioned the book Cold Cases a True Crime Collection, unidentified serial killers, unsolved kidnappings. She covers among other crimes aside from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist, the Zodiac killer, Natalie Holloway, the Golden State killer, very good read and might I say a Nancy Drew fan. So there, you had me at Nancy Drew.
0: And this conversation recorded live on GetVocal.com. And we have a weekly slot Thursday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern. And in this episode, we talked with Shayna about the Black
1: Dahlia. So we're sure you're going to enjoy the interview. And if you want to pick up Shayna's book, Cold Cases, A True Crime Collection, you can simply search that at Amazon.com or just on your Google machine and uh, make sure you pick that up.
0: Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. and gentlemen it's thursday night it's crawlspace live i'm tim here today with lance what's up lance
1: oh feels good you know what the uh the town clock has has struck nine battles this evening <laughs> which which always brings me joy it always brings me joy it's thursday night it's the one consistent thing that's been um just a beacon in the night in this horrible year this 2020 the only thing you can depend on is thursday night true crime thursday on get vocal if you if you listen you can hear the church bells toll 9 p.m.
0: we've already got requests for you to not do the english accent what? in the chat room <laughs> it, cuz it's too much i understand i'm a little worked up too though already because last week we were shut down abruptly um it was we had some technical difficulties but we want to thank and welcome back author Shana Roth to our airwaves, author of Cold
1: Cases. How's it going, Shayna?
0: I'm doing fabulous. How are you guys
1: doing? Can't be better. Yeah, can't be better. The, that book that uh, Tim's holding up right there, that is a fantastic book. Uh, Cold Cases, a true crime collection. We're going to get into that, but tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? You are in radio. You're a writer, an occasional backpacker from what I've read.
2: Yeah, I try and do as much as possible. My husband tells me my ego is wrapped up in being busy for some reason. I don't know where that came from, but that is me. Um, So right now I'm actually working in print. I'm a former uh, public radio reporter. I used to cover politics. I covered the 2016 election for Michigan's uh, NPR stations, uh, as well as, you know, Everything else that was going on in 2016. <laughs> you think 2020 is weird? 2016, we, the year we thought was going to be the craziest year ever, and now we're in 2020. We know better. Um, so I did that for a few years, and now I work for M Live, which is a Michigan uh, newspaper and an online site. I cover the environment right now, statewide, and yeah, I in my spare time wrote a book about a year ago. Is when I started it, and it's based on. Uh, A number of cold cases that I came across and sort of worked with my publisher to figure out what cold cases we wanted to talk about. But um, I was approached by Ulysses Press to write the book because I also have a former life as a prosecuting attorney. I was a prosecuting attorney for a little over a year in a small Michigan county called Ionia County. I didn't love it, it wasn't quite for me. It takes a very special type of person to, to do that on a daily basis and I was not that type of person. And so I became a journalist and so it, the book kind of combines that experience as a prosecutor with my experience as a journalist and is littered with my uh, sarcasm and uh, I just really wanted it to feel like you were sitting down and having a coffee with a good friend and talking about some of really interesting cases.
1: Well. Before before we get into that, I'm, I'm actually surprised that Tim didn't cut you off when you said NPR. He notori- he doesn't like NPR. Uh, he doesn't hate uh, it. No, he hates hate it. it. He he is uh, lobbying the government to pull funding. He thinks defund it, defund NPR, and um, yeah, he doesn't see the use for it. And he he's like they're <laughs> they're so smarmy. He used the word smarmy. <laughs>
2: I mean, you know, I'm sh- there, there's probably some reporters, you know, there's there's some in every bunch, uh, but you know, I don't worry. I I got out of there while well, the getting out was good.
0: Well, and and luckily, most of that is not true. Um, just the part about them being smarmy. They're definitely smarmy.
2: <laughs> I tried my best to to really to really tone down my smarm while I was while I was on the radio. I don't know how often I succeeded, but I tried my best. <laughs>
0: Well, I will say your book is excellent. I love how, I mean, really, you, you've, you've done a ton of research on each of these chapters, each of the stories you cover. So each chapter is a different cold case, and you really run the gamut um, because you cover art crime as well with the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum Heist, and that is uh, how we know you, how we got to know you uh, through Empty Frames, um, that our art crime show.
2: Yeah, I really wanted for the book to be about more than murder. Um, You know, when I was uh, talking with with my editor, uh, you know, there were a few cases that they really wanted to include, you know, some popular ones like John JonBenet Ramsey and the Black Dahlia. Um, But I wanted to to make sure that, you know, there was a little bit of lightness in there. You know, not all crime is murder. In fact, most crimes are not do not involve assault or murder of any kind. Um, So I wanted to include that. And, you know, as we discussed on the about the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum, I mean, that's that's just an amazing art heist um, that I wanted to include. And then there was, of course, D.B. Cooper. Um, And, you know, the rest of it tends to be, you know, either disappearances or serial murders or individual murders. But, yeah, I wanted to to kind of have a broad spectrum of different types of cold cases included.
1: What was uh sort of the most daunting one that you took on? Because you just mentioned you had uh, JonBenet Ramsey, you have D.B. Cooper, you have one on the Golden State Killer, uh, the Zodiac. Was there anyone that you were like, wow, that is, uh, that's, that's so, like, the Zodiac, like, were you expecting to uncover something about the Zodiac? Uh, you know, like, what was the most daunting thing? Did you feel, here's my question, did you feel the need to say something new about the Zodiac?
2: I felt the need to say something new about all of them. Uh, and I, and I will confess that when I started like researching, I started with the Zodiac and researching that one, I had like a whiteboard and I was like, I'm going to solve this. I got this. I'm going to figure this out. It's going to be fine. And I was like writing the codes on the thing. And then it took me like a day and I'm like, no, no, this is, there's, there's a reason that nobody has cracked this. This is not, this is not going to happen. But, but it was a very, like, especially the Zodiac was a very daunting chapter because we've, there's been so much about Podcasts. there's, there's umpteen million movies, there's, there's books. And so what I tried to focus on for each of these cases was not so much about like, okay, I need to like find a new fact or, you know, like uncover, you know new evidence in these cases, but really it was more about what is a fresh perspective that I can bring to these cases that most people have probably heard about multiple times. So I tried to come up with different themes uh, that I would notice as I was doing my research. So I really wanted to do the uh, Cleveland Torso Murders because I was really drawn to the fact that Elliot Ness did not die the, you know, Kevin Costner in The Untouchables heartthrob that I had assumed he had. It turned out that he died, you know, an alcoholic, uh, broke at his kitchen sink, uh, feeling like a complete failure. Um, And so, you know, it was things like that that I was uncovering as I was working on these cases that I thought, okay, you know, here's something that might uh, deserve to be elevated or here's something that I can put some sort of a fresh perspective on.
1: Yeah, for sure. And it's funny you mentioned the Elliot Ness thing because that's something that stood out to me. I, I I watched the movie The Untouchables so many times as a, as a kid and they leave you with that perception of Elliot Ness. Like he put he put away Al Capone. It was this like historic moment in crime history and he rode off in the sunset and was probably given accommodations, but that's not the case. He was a severely uh, tortured and uh, alcoholic and, and broken human being.
2: Yeah, I mean he he rode off into Cleveland and thinking he was going to be, you know, like like their sort of top cop in the area. He was going to, you know, fix the traffic problems and, you know, do some other, you know, you know, just like oh, I'm here for the for the good of the people stuff. And and it, that's not what happened. Instead, he got dumped into a place that was, you know, overrun with poverty. You know, it was in a very bad situation and it just so happened that somebody started chopping up bodies and throwing them all over the place. And that was eventually (laughs) his problem to try and solve. And the fact that he couldn't is, is incredibly tragic. And, you know, it's one of the things that I wanted to kind of continually focus on in each of these chapters was, was the victims and to make sure that, you know, their voices on some level were heard and that they weren't just treated as props. Um, and, and in that chapter, I really saw him as being one of the victims because it just completely destroyed his life, his inability to solve that case.
0: Well, I would say you definitely achieved uh, honoring the victim in, in the case of the Black Dahlia, the chapter uh, on her, um, because uh, it really, really kind of stands out. You, I mean, you, you really dug into that. You really kind of tried to, tried to take away the nickname in a way, in a sense. You know, I almost didn't want to use it tonight after I read that chapter.
2: Ah, mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that one was one where I found what? myself, like, really ended up passionate about that case. A-
1: that's really funny that Tim said that because before we started the show, he's, he was like, I'm going to use that Black Dahlia line over and over and over until her head pops. So I've, I think it's funny that he did a 180 again. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Go on. And I interrupted. I'm going to mute myself. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this. Conversation. I'm in, I'm into it. Uh, no, but, but the Black Dolly chapter, I think that was definitely one where I felt myself becoming very personally invested in it, because the more I read the especially the media coverage of it at the time, the newspaper articles about Elizabeth Short and about what had happened to her, it just it felt so demeaning and it felt like her Uh, essence had really been taken away from her she was not treated as as an individual person she was treated as you know victim with like a lowercase v it was just uh, really difficult to to see her having to have gone through that after she had died you know she was a very complete person and unfortunately there's not a ton known about her as an individual so I, i took it as you know sort of my job to do the best that I could in the time that I had to, to really give her some sort of a voice and, and and to try and discourage people from going forward, from treating victims in that way, as though they are just these sort of uh, props in these gruesome macabre stories.
0: Mm -hmm. And how much research did you do per chapter? Like how many articles did you? Yeah. Cause you you cite like, uh, I think up to up to like 90 articles, I feel like in a, in a certain chapter, um, yeah, how many uh how long did it take you to research for a chapter?
2: It took quite a bit. Newspapers.com, I am constantly like giving them a shout out. I would love to be their their new spokeswoman uh, because they were that that that's an incredible website. I mean, if you're ever just bored and are curious about, you know, what uh, it's just a case or coverage of anything, I mean, it's 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 pretty user-friendly. Um so I you know, I combed through a lot of their their archives, a lot of their newspapers. Um you know, I got there's a few of these cases are so old and so well known that the FBI has released their fo- their documents online. So, you know, I did a lot of combing through different archival uh, police reports and things like that. Um, so how much research? I mean, it was it was a lot. <laughs> I'll just say that. I mean, the book from when I uh, signed the contract to when I sent them the final draft was about a year, which, you know, talking with other people is, is kind of like They only gave you a year like that's insane but it worked out really well but yeah a lot of that was spent doing the research and kind of uh taking it one chapter at a time and just sitting down and you know going through everything you know highlighting and and making notes and then when i got to a certain place where i felt like okay i think i i think i've got a handle on this is when i would sit down and start like interpreting it in my in my voice and sort of writing through that chapter
0: that's pretty cool. Uh, interesting process. I'm um, I'm surprised to know that uh, that in your chapter on Elizabeth Short, in your research, it didn't it come goes. up that my grand <laughs> <laughs> that my grandmother and Elizabeth Short were actually roommates uh, for a period of time in Medford, Massachusetts.
2: I can't tell if you're being serious or not. I am actually being <laughs> serious. Oh no, kidding.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I unfortunately I don't know much about it other than that. Um I know I know and I and in reading um your chapter um on her it, it must have been after I think she had gone to Florida for a while and then before she went to California.
2: Oh wow. Yeah. It is such a small world. Yeah. <laughs> So how did you find out about that? Like, was she, did she tell you about that, or she was, she like, was is it like family lore?
1: She was arrested for the murder. Briefly, they, they, <laughs> oh, okay, that makes.
2: Sense. They oh, interrogated her
1: for a little bit, but um, no. yeah, she passed yeah. the polygraph.
0: <laughs> no, uh, I, it, it's just kind of like I feel like it was just known in my family. Um, I, I remember. I mean, my, I have my mom. And she has six sisters, so uh, they they were big big into crime uh, crime stories. So that was just kind of like known in the family. But I didn't really, I, I never really knew anything else about it. Um, and I'm not really. I guess I could I could ask some of my aunts now to see if uh, there's anything more to that.
2: Small world. Yeah, very small world. I thought for sure you were going to be like, actually, she did, in fact, kill the black. I mean, because there's just so many people. She I mean, if, if that was, that, well, that was one of the crazy things about writing this book. Shut up, Liz. Was,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure my, my grandmother never even went to California. So, no, she couldn't have.
2: Well, I mean, you know, do we really know our grandmothers? <laughs> exactly. Is the question
0: well, well, let me just say, though, uh, my, my grandfather, her, her husband, his nickname was Red. Just like one of the suspects in in uh, in the black. In, this is, is something we might Murph. need to
1: take offline. <laughs> but,
2: but, I think we got to do some digging here. Is is what I'm hearing. But it wasn't
0: that fellow. The the fellow who was uh, suspected.
1: <laughs> tell tell her about your uncle, uh, uh, Al Al DeSalvo. Albert DeSalvo. Yeah. <laughs> uncle Al.
0: Actually, my my mom my mom met Albert DeSalvo.
1: Oh, yeah. That Uncle is Chokey.
0: Yeah. She did She did meet him uh, briefly. She was, like, introduced to him, She her friend. Yeah, this is crazy. We're going through all my uh, family <laughs> uh, true crime folklore tonight.
2: Wow. I have one. I have one. My dad shook O.J. Simpson's hand one time.
1: Before or yeah, after? Yeah, when?
2: As far as I know, it was before. It was when he was in football. My dad somehow was out of practice or something, and he shook his hand and that was one of the big things when that case came out he's like, I shook that guy's hand and I'm just, you know, like what, what are you talking about? What's going on?
1: Oh, I, I wanted, I wanted it to be that he shook his hand on set of the naked gun. <laughs>
2: like, oh no, unfortunately no good performance,
1: <laughs> sir. No,
0: well, it is weird when you have like a uh, personal kind of brushes with, um, I guess uh, like a, like a major case like that, you know, it kind of, yeah, it is interesting. And, uh, really it, Elizabeth Short's case. I, I find, um, compelling too and, and you go through a lot of those suspects in there were, were there any that really kind of stuck out to you as being more likely
2: not really um, you know that was one of those cases where like a, like happened in quite a few of them where just like randos would come out of the woodwork and be like, It was me, I did it. And then you find out they're crazy or they want attention. So it was yeah, it was one of those cases where that happened so much that I think it really drowned out any ability to kind of find like who could have possibly actually done it. Um, you know, there's a lot of theories about that case. There's, you know, theories that she knew the person. There's theories that, you know, it was it was the doctor, uh I don't for whatever reason, I don't find any of them to be extremely compelling. I think that particularly for a case like that where they've been cold for so long, we just have to accept the fact that we're just not going to find the answer to this, because if if we were able to, we probably would have by now. But that's the pessimist in me. So,
0: But I like that, that you kind of make the case for a serial killer uh, in, in the chapter, and uh, I think it's really an astute observation And uh, I think that's pretty likely.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's the well, based on what we know now or think we know now about serial murders, it just it, it has a lot of those hallmarks of it. And, you know, there were other women at the time who you know, had these events, you know, who were murdered uh, in not exactly the same way, but I think that if it, if they had that sort of language and that understanding at the time that, that there could be, you know, some psychopath out there killing multiple people of this sort of similar situations, I think that that would have been something that they definitely would have explored, but, you know, it was just, that's, that's, One of the interesting things about law enforcement and about solving crimes is like there's we're just always uh, there's there's a continual evolution of it. Um, And unfortunately, I think that the case was probably so long ago that we probably can't definitively come up with an answer, uh, even using today's new technology. But I think that if this had happened, you know, even 20, 30 years after it did, we probably could have figured it out.
0: And uh, Shiloh in the chat room, who uh, works in Los Angeles, uh, adjacent to law enforcement at least, um, try to be vague, I'm not, uh, and, but, but she says that Hodel was totally a serial murderer. And Hodel was, um, I believe, uh, the one of the suspects um, was sort of outed by his son, uh, which is very bizarre, little twist.
2: Yeah, that happened a couple times. There was uh, Hodel said that his dad did it. There was another woman who said that her dad did it. Um, and I think that I think Hodel is an interesting study. Um, not not Hodel the 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 accused individual, but Hodel the, the the son who keeps accusing this because his you know his sort of backstory of being a cop um, and then sort of like oh no, I discovered that my dad did it is. You know, if it's true is is bananas. Um, but I tend to be one of those people where if I see if I hear hoofbeats, I think horses not zebras. So I think that if it's so crazy like that, I tend to be very skeptical of it. But, you know, I mean, he does have some interesting uh, arguments for it. Um, you know, some of the people that I spoke with, uh, even after the book was, was written, was, was finished, you know, they're very, very skeptical of Hodel. You know, they just, they just don't think that he's got, you know, that he's, you know, making a lot of stretches and he's drawing a lot of conclusions that don't quite fit. Um, but I think that the, the more interesting character in all of that is, is the son and sort of what his, cause now he's, you know, he's selling more books. He's got, he has the sequel. I, and I, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like he also said that his dad was the Zodiac. Or, or was responsible for something else. Somebody else he, in the chat, help me out here. Yes.
1: He was, uh, was, was he like uh, under suspicion for murder a couple of years before the black Dahlia before he, he
2: was, uh, he went to trial for what we now know to be essentially molestation. Um, so, I mean, he was clearly a very uh, bad person and, um, so but i don't know that he was actually ever suspected of murder
0: well it, it really is a fascinating part and uh shiloh says that she knows um steve the uh junior the uh
1: interesting yeah oh maybe um, shiloh should pop on here and tell shiloh. us about it.
0: yeah pop i on. would love
2: to hear i'm so fascinated by him i would love to hear more
0: yeah that, that really is interesting to uh have the conviction i guess to, to to say that you, you think your dad might've, uh, been this, um, you know, the murderer of the, of this, this famous victim, Shiloh, how's it going? Good.
3: I don't feel like this is my story to tell at all though, but, um, but yeah, we did a panel with Steve last year. Um, and so Scott and I kind of got to know him through that and he and I have remained pretty close um and i am like halfway through one book of his seven or whatever because they're so dense um but yeah she's right um he does also make the leap that his dad is responsible for the zodiac killing so
2: kind of crazy what's he yeah. like in person when he's like explaining the these connections because I feel like like I, for me at least I was like okay I, cu- I could get on board with like maybe your dad's the, the black that this Ziz- killed Elizabeth short mm-hmm. uh, it's when he's like oh but he also killed the zodiac it's like, like what like how I guess how legit does he feel when you talk to him
3: um so I have always told him when I sit down and talk with him that I actually want to read through the books and read through all of it rather than having him trying to explain it to me in a like our conversation um So I haven't even gone there yet verbally with him. Um, But I always, I call him like I, my adopted grandpa and that I have adopted him (laughs) as like, Hey, just, he's wonderful to sit down and talk with. And um, we've gone to lunch a couple of times and just sort of told me about, you know, talking about his career in law enforcement at LAPD and working homicide and it tracks with all the other law enforcement officers that I've ever worked with. Um, He had a very eclectic upbringing. So um, just with his dad's uniqueness. Um, But he's, you know, very, very interesting guy. And um, it's become a relationship that I really value. Um, I would love for The case to be solved, you know, while he is still alive, that would be amazing. And he also wants that too, whether it's his dad or not. So,
2: um, like examining and and working on the case and looking for, for different angles and new evidence and things like that. Um,
3: there is evidence that is there that investigators aren't interested in. Um, according to him so um and i i understand the politics of the big departments and how um you know to me it's just mind-blowing like why wouldn't a department want to solve the oldest you know most popular high profile cold case in los angeles (laughs) like do it right now maybe that'll take the heat off of you for other things Um, but I, I also, I do understand that there are politics behind it um, and people get really territorial over cases and it's still technically an open case in Los Angeles. Like there is a homicide detective that has that case assigned to them. So um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, he took all of the evidence he uncovered to the district attorney at the time, um, you know, a couple, maybe 15 years ago and the district attorney said, if your dad was alive, I would file on him right now. So, and I have copies of all those documents that he gave to the district attorney.
1: Does he ever come across as like uh super fringy or uh, edgy or anything? Because uh, just reading into it, you don't even have to like look into him very deeply before you see that he's, um, he's, uh, suspected his father of being the, the lipstick killer, uh, the Zodiac, something about the jigsaw murderer. Um, well, those are all the
3: the serial killings that she was talking about, like all within the same time period in Los Angeles. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. They were all happening around the same time. I think, um, Wondery did a really good podcast on like all of those killings that were happening at the same time. I can't remember what it's called, but, it, it might just be titled "The Black Dahlia Murders," plural. Um, but no, I mean, one on one, he doesn't come off as fringy. Um, you know, it. But it's it's a lot to digest. It really is. Yeah. But also it's cool to think about. You know, you're like, well, well, what if? You know, <laughs> what if that would be so crazy?
1: Does he ever give like an impression of of regret or maybe shame? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, don't. uh this is my dad. Don't look at me the same way.
3: No, no, I, I don't think, you know, he has a very um, good sense of self where it's not as if, you know, those two things have been put together. He has other brothers as well. You know, it's not like it, it is a very interesting family. And we know that from like the root of evil podcast and the the TV show that was done and all of that. But um, it seems like it like his generation, you know, people did pretty well and, and weren't as dysfunctional.
1: You keep mentioning these other podcasts, I as if you listen to anything else besides crawl space and missing more Murray and Empty Frames. Um you must be told information about these podcasts, right?
3: Well, you know what's weird is is I know that you stole your guest from Rebecca and I know that's a thing you guys do. So it's, <laughs> but at least that's
2: <laughs> crawlspace, right? I mean what? <laughs>
1: we do not go
2: i came willingly yeah
1: we do not we do not steal guests from rebecca sebastian we simply go to her website and we look at her past shows and we say oh those are interesting guests and we listen to the interviews and we say they're very fun you know they're very knowledgeable and uh, they make for great interviews and it's more like a tribute
3: Hey, Crawl community. Do you love true crime podcasts but could do without all the chatty banter? Are you intrigued by what's underneath our collective true crime obsession and want to hear field experts, authors, and content creators weigh in on the subject? Well, it might be time for you to kill the small talk and join the dialogue. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, host of Dialogue, a true crime conversation, which is a weekly podcast where I speak with fascinating guests from the true crime world and the criminal justice system. And yes, I have interviewed Tim and Lance, and you don't want to miss that episode. Together, we explore the genre itself and attempt to answer the why of true crime. And the question, what are we even talking about when we talk about true crime? Join me every Wednesday for a new episode and a killer conversation. Dialogue is part of the Crawl Space Network and available wherever you listen.
1: I noticed that you have a Nancy Drew book. I do strategically positioned behind you uh yeah so you were uh, a Nancy Drew fan was it just strictly Nancy Drew or did the little like Hardy Boys get in there I,
2: I I read a few Hardy Boys but I mean Nancy was my girl I I grew up just constantly consuming Nancy Drew books um and this was just one that like I found in my parents basement uh a few years ago and was like oh well I I need to have that and have to display it prominently everywhere I go um But yeah, no, I mean, that's, I've, I've been a lover of mysteries for probably even since I was a kid. I think my initial, uh, you know, I I really wanted to just solve mysteries. And I think that was part of the reason why I wanted to become a lawyer is because I thought that, that there was some level of mystery solving. I'm like, I don't think I can make it as a cop. You know, they got to drive around a lot and I don't know how to get from point A to point B. And I don't know, that, that just seems like the people yell at you all the time. And then I found out that people yell at lawyers all the time, too. And I was very disappointed. But yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely grew up loving Nancy Drew.
1: That's crazy. Do you know when that book was written in the 30s?
2: Yeah, and yeah, and it turns out I recently found out that, because I, it's been a while since I read like the original versions of them, that they had to go through and make a few changes because apparently the original 1930s uh, weren't super PC on some things, and so they kind of went through and made a few light ads.
1: <laughs> she was yeah. Yeah, just ahead of her time? Uh, mm-hmm.
2: Behind her times now. <laughs>
0: oh, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> well, um, I, I do want to talk about... Uh, amber hagerman too and uh and really the how the amber alert came to be was was that case which i found uh very interesting uh reading in in your book
2: yeah that one was i really wanted to include a chapter that had that 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 kind of had some sort of a you know I guess not, not a silver lining because there's still a dead child at the end of the day, but that shows that, you know, occasionally something good can come uh, from terrible, terrible things. Uh, and, the, and the Amber Alert case was exactly that, where you had this, you know, really remarkably terrible, tragic event that happened. Uh, but the result of it was a woman was, you know, watching the coverage on TV and got an idea Um, And speaking with her was was really interesting because, you know, she was just just a very normal person. She's, I believe, a massage therapist. And it was just one of those things where I think a lot of uh, true crime enthusiasts, there's a case that gets to them. I think I think her her story is very uh, real for a lot of people where she saw you know, the coverage of it. And she just was so drawn in and she just could not let it go. She just, you know, kept thinking about the case and thinking about it, thinking about it and just being like, I want to be able to do something. And and she actually did. And it's, and it's absolutely remarkable. Um, And, and that was a really hard chapter for me to write. I think that for personal reasons was probably, you had asked earlier, you just know, sort of the most difficult one. I think that one personally was the most difficult one because I was like, six months pregnant when i started working on that chapter um and so i had a few nightmares and i had a few cries and um but yeah i i thought that that case really was something that i don't think a lot of people think about um you know i think people are familiar with amber alerts you know they blow up our phone every now and then but you know the the backstory to that i think is really remarkable
0: can i ask where those tears came from if you don't mind sharing like what like what what about that uh brought that reaction
2: yeah i'm a bit of a crier anyway you know like i i i read my daughter the lorax and like i cry at the end of it (laughs) every time because it's so soon like the trees we gotta save the trees um but no for me it was initially it was this reaction of like, Oh my God, I'm bringing a kid into the world and and she's not going to be safe. Like there's, there's just nothing, there's just nowhere to hide. Uh, and how can I be doing this? And then I, you know, kind of took a couple breaths and I started looking into, stati- and that kind of got me looking into like statistics and things like that. And that's why I wanted to include a section in the book that kind of talks about how, um, you know, how rare these types of kidnappings are that, that, you know, really people are safe majoritively and that, you know, a lot of times crime happens between people that, you know, um, or, you know, is, is done by somebody that, you know, particularly crimes against children. And, and that kind of helped in some ways was like a bit of a therapy for me, helped reassure me that, you know, uh, the world is going to be an okay place for her. Um, but yeah, but a lot of it was just, you know, just the thought of of somebody taking a child was just really rough for me and I, always, but especially, you know, sort of in that heightened circumstance.
1: Yeah. And her case is still unsolved. Is this something that you, um, you know, when you were covering it as as part of your book, did you ever consider maybe making this into a larger scale book or a larger scale project because it affected you the way it did? I
2: hadn't. You know, I've I've thought about sort of, you know, what are some other projects that I could do, uh, you know, sort of after this one kind of, you know, settles down. Um, and I think that that would definitely be one of them that might be worth kind of digging into a bit more and seeing, you know, what else is out there um, about that case. The other one is, is probably the Freeway Phantom, where I thought, uh, you know, this is a case that I'm, you know, really deserves kind of like that full scale, like podcast treatment type. Or uh, type thing. I mean, I think that would be a really interesting, uh, you know, similar to the um, to the Atlanta Murders podcast that came out um, or Empty Frames. Uh, The only podcast I listen to. Exactly.
3: Uh, (laughs) uh,
2: You know, I think that one is definitely the the you know, there's so much to the freeway phantom, you know, that you've got the culture at the time you've got, uh, you know, more discussion deserves about who these little girls were. Um, you know, I think there's just so much there, uh, that, that really it deserves more than, than what it got, because really it, that's a case that I had difficulty finding information on. Um, you know, I had to, don't, don't tell the DC library, but I had to steal a friend's library card because, you know, her know,
1: oh my God, you just said that it's on Twitter. It's on Facebook. It is on YouTube. This, Wait, is this, this is streaming live. just between us, right? No, right. We can't edit this. No. <laughs> There's a thousand, hundred thousand people listening to this. At least. At the least. DC library is gonna come for
2: me. <laughs> They're coming for me. I can I'm hear concerned. the sirens
1: already. Oh no, Alice is, <laughs> calling, Alice the is calling the FBI. Oh
2: no, Alice, come on!
1: <laughs> oh geez, well you know what, Tim? You know what I'm what I'm hearing here is uh, a pitch for a show on the Crawl Space Media Network, and I'm totally down with this. I think this would make a great show on the Crawl Space Media Network. You, uh, you already have the experience behind the microphone and the library
2: card. So
1: <laughs> and the library card. <laughs> well. We'll we'll workshop this offline, but I'm dead serious.
2: I'm I'm into it. I yeah. I that's one of those cases where I just you know there was a few of them, but as I was writing this book, I'm like, there's just not. They gave me like seven thousand words, and I'm like, I need more. There's just there's too much here that that really deserves to to be looked into and told. And I'm just that's one of I've I've kept all my stuff on that one. I just kind of keep eyeing that pile in my in my office. Like we gotta we gotta work on that a little bit more.
0: Yeah, um, some some of the murders that we cover um, are so disturbing, and I and Molly Bish is one that that comes to mind that that really disturbed me. Uh, similar to what you were kind of saying about how uh, Amber's case disturbed you, and I wonder sometimes if it's if like if we're really not that safe. Like, is is it worth it? Feeling less safe in doing this work. Do you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, I, I think it is, it gotta be right because you're more aware now, like the, the bad guys are still the same amount, right?
2: Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I I've kind of, you know, shorn up my defenses when I was a prosecutor and then I went and I married a prosecutor, uh, who is still, uh, well now he's a, he's an assistant U S attorney. Um, but you know, so I for spent the last you know, however many years we have been together, uh, you know, every day coming home and I'd be like, what'd you work on today? And hearing about, you know, he used to do murders. He used to do rapes. He used to do like just really, really difficult cases. And, you know, he, we would talk through them and he'd talk me through his, you know, before trial, we talked through these things. So I had really developed a sort of, uh, yeah, I guess like a shored up armor when it comes to talking about these cases. It gets a little bit different, though, I I, I felt when I was writing, working on the book when I'm like deep into it, when it's more than just a conversation, when it's like I am reading through all of the police reports and I'm reading through the news coverage and I'm looking and I'm watching all of the documentaries like you just become so consumed by these cases. And it does get difficult. It does get really tricky. I think that the the way that I sort of work through that is having a sense of humor um, and realizing that uh, you know this stuff's going to happen whether I find a way to 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 joke or not. Um, and the other thing too is just um, you know I'm just I'm I'm very open about the fact that you know like I speak to a therapist and like I I'm very aware of mental of my mental health and um, that's something that I've done sort of progressively throughout uh you know when i was in college through through even today um so you know i think there's there's different things that that you can do to to really ensure that that you're protecting yourself while you are working on on uh, very difficult cases like this
1: yeah you see a lot of people who just get burnt out we've seen that uh, numerous times when we've covered maura murray's case people just dive in uh because they love the mystery, they love untangling that the, that knot, and and they think they can do it. And I mean, you kind of said it with uh, you know, the cases that you covered in in your book. You're not going to solve something like someone someone looking into it uh, just as a hobby most likely will not solve something that has gone unsolved for you know fifteen, twenty, twenty five years. Um. So and then you you see people, I guess, uh, fall into this abyss of they didn't understand that this was like actual reality and it's actually dark. And there's a, a, a spectrum of psychosis that you have to <laughs> become aware of. Um, and, and you're right. The sense of humor helps, uh, Tim and I have recently learned about this spectrum of psychosis, which goes, you know, it runs a gamut from like narcissism to like full blown psychopath. And then there's the Machiavellianism and all of this stuff. And it's like, what there. I think Heather Bish, Heather Bish said something when she was on with us um, to the effect of it would be nice if <sighs> something about like, it'd be nice if if it was just one bad guy. It'd be nice if you caught, you know, one bad, like, and that, that, that he was responsible for that or, and, and it's the reality is that there's so many types of bad guys out there.
0: And she, she was hoping that, that uh, Molly's killer and uh, Holly Parinian right. were, killer uh her killer were the same because she doesn't think they are and they're two young girls who are murdered around the same area around the same time and uh it's a lot harder to uh i guess rationalize or realize that it's probably two different people
2: yeah i mean it's it's it is it's, it's easy to it, it's it's easy to for two in two ways. I mean, it's easy to kind of say see you know sort of the the vague outlines of a case and go oh that's interesting. I'm curious and just jump in and then it becomes really easy to lose yourself into it um, because I think that humans are naturally curious, particularly humans that are interested in true crime. You know, we're curious. We want to know what happened and and human nature requires some sense of finality. You know, we want closure. We want to know what happened in these cases. And I think that sometimes it's, it becomes uh, difficult to pull yourself back and to take a step back and be like, you know what, we might just not get that sense of closure and I just have to be okay with it. Can I ask what is going on with the honey?
0: I'm so, curious. <laughs> so oh, yeah, the chat room is a lot of times on a different uh on a different plane <laughs> um and uh, i know
2: i'm trying to just completely I'm... break it up i just keep seeing like honey somebody's buying honey how much is the honey
0: I, <laughs> so, i've been yeah. on the brink of laughing just from some of the comments in the chat room through some real serious uh topics that we're actually having on the air so yeah, unrelated kind of tough but this is the honey uh this is lance's uh lance's company and uh, that's his dog
1: <gasps> well that's amazing yeah so yeah we just we just uh had our first round of uh selling selling uh honey from the hives in Salem Massachusetts this is a brand new venture that I started to do and we use <laughs> and Tim's chugging it uh, my dog, Eric is the CEO of the company and he sort of runs the operations and, um, yeah, people just started recently receiving their honey that, uh, that, that, was sold out. So I see, uh, Esther and Brock, um, let's get your addresses offline and we'll, we'll send you a couple of bottles and, uh, Shane, if you want a, a bottle of honey as well.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a honey enthusiast. I, I have honey sticks currently in my pantry. I would love some more honey. So yes, please.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. We'll grab your, your address offline, off or if you just want to give it live right here, you've already spilled the tea on the uh library card theft. So um, <laughs> which actually re-
2: as difficult as possible for them to find me.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> so you, you stole a library card. <laughs> and you covered- I stole the library
2: card number.
1: <laughs> okay. And you covered the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist.
0: Ooh, I see where you're going with this. I, I, I'm
1: not. I'm not making definitive connections here, but I would like to know where you were at March 18th, 1990.
2: I'm going to have to plead the fifth, sir.
1: <laughs> well, okay. that sounds like an admission of guilt. I think we have solved <laughs> Isabella Stewart Museum heist. Who knew? <laughs> Well, um, I, have a, I have a kind of a fun question for you. Uh, you cover a lot of crime. You've read a lot of crime books. You've written a lot about crime. Uh, what is your favorite uh, or a standout adaptation of a true crime um, story that, that, is, that is made like, you know, a TV series or a movie?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Standout for being good or standout for being bad?
1: Ooh, I was thinking good, but let's do both
2: because the the black dahlia i think it was just called i think it was called black dahlia the one with hillary swank was just exceptional and i think josh Hartnett was in that one too that one is just an a, a, a exceptionally terrible movie um really disappointing as far as a really good one oh god i don't know why i'm having trouble thinking of one off the top of my head what do you guys like
1: for for true crime adaptation uh I mean Zodiac. It doesn't get much better than Zodiac. Zodiac's great.
2: The David Fincher one. Yes. 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 Yep. No. Nope. Yeah. That's got to be it, right? Yeah. That one's just an incredible movie. That's that's for me is peak Robert Downey Jr. I mean, forget yes. Iron Man. I mean, he is fantastic in that
1: movie. Oh, he plays such a great character. His his character is Paul Avery, right? Like he he plays that character so well. One of one of the one of the best scenes is at the is towards the end when he's in the bar and he sees you know. Uh, Robert Graysmith on the uh, on the news and he, and he just has that one line where he's just like fucking library and it's so well it's the it's one of the best lines in the whole movie it, it's so good you know what's shocking about the Black Dahlia movie is that Brian De Palma made it and it's so bad I know,
2: I, know. I, I was I when I was working on this I was like oh I think I missed that one and so I'm like oh Brian De Palma this is probably going to be really great how did I miss it the first time around and then I watched it and I was just like what what are we doing here people what happened? Who hurt you? Why, why is this happening? God,
1: what? Well, very random. I don't think we've ever yeah. mentioned Brian De Palma on a Get Vocal or in any one of our shows, and we've already Definitely mentioned not. two of his movies tonight.
0: What was the other one? Untouchables. Oh, duh. That's right. See, he's really hit or miss, right? He like that's really a great movie. Yeah. yeah
2: yeah those are those are just way on the other end of the spectrum that's too bad
0: black Dahlia was so disappointing i'm with you there i remember being very excited for that movie when it came out
2: yeah and it really played into the whole like this you know we're treating her as some sort of like weird sexist object kind of a thing it was just it just got so nuts yeah no